1: I am standing on a bridge that spans the turbulent waters of the Tamar River in Tasmania. I am a child, standing on the wrought iron bridge, a child, staring through the heavy wire barrier, down, down, at the thundering tumult of water as it froths and lashes its way towards me. To my right, a tall, wet wall of grim grey natural rock, quietly seeping its tears, here and there dripping with shady ferns. Tall, sombre trees up there on top of the wall near the sky, blotting out the sun. To my left, the opposite hill of yellowy scrub and twisted, mournful trees that sigh but cannot weep. And ever between, roaring and leaping, the menace of the fright-filled spectacle of water wild. I am so small, high up above those waters, transfixed and terrified, suddenly snapped out of everyday consciousness and into a brief flash of truth. A solitude 10,000 fathoms deep. I am alone in time and place. What if the bridge should break?
0: Carmel Bird is a writer of both fiction and non-fiction. She's published novels, essays, anthologies, and children's books. In 2016, Carmel was the recipient of the Patrick White Literary Award, an annual award for outstanding writing with a substantial body of work. Carmel, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. It's lovely to be here, Greg. Telltale is a a memoir with rules. What were the conditions under which you wrote Telltale and the boundaries you set for yourself?
1: Yes, well, I began writing Telltale at the beginning of the pandemic when we were in lockdown, and I found that I wanted to write about reading and writing, and I was (laughs) locked in my house with all my books. I have many, many books. And I began writing about them, and I thought, well, I'm going to uh, take advantage of the fact that I'm locked in with these particular books, many of which I have most of which, many, most of which I have read over the years. Uh, and I would think, now, I think I'll look up that, that certain book that I'll, I'll write about that, and if I couldn't find the book in the house, I made a rule that I wasn't permitted to get it from anywhere else, so that I was, as it were, imprisoned with these books couldn't get to any other books. So I couldn't, couldn't call the library. I couldn't call the bookshop. I couldn't ask a friend to drop one on the doorstep. I had to use just the books that were here, which was a lovely discipline. It was a beautiful thing.
0: I'd like to talk about the purpose of this book too. You say at one point, I re-examine some of the books I've read, sometimes searching for the influences, moments in my life that are interwoven with the books, memories are awakened. I'm searching for the story of the story, the pattern of the patterns, the warp and the weft. What patterns have emerged in the warp and the weft, and what do they tell you about us and your reading and writing life?
1: Yes, there are patterns that emerge in my reading, starting perhaps with fairy tales, and fairy tales such as the Brothers Grimm, which I read when I started reading when I was about six, uh, uh, have had a great influence on what I'm interested in reading and also w- what I write. I think that the the books that I read have had a, an influence on what I write and even sometimes on my style. I've noticed that um, the stories of Brewer Rabbit have in them, uh, that I read when I was six, have in a uh, language like lippity-clippity, he, the, the rabbit goes along lippity-clippity. And it wasn't until I reread those stories in 2020 that it suddenly dawned on me that I sometimes do something like lippity-clippity in my own writing. In a recent story, I go splishity-splashity, not realising that possibly I learned to do that when I was six
0: and we constantly return to these stories they almost like reference points in our lives
1: indeed that's what that's that, that is what they have become reference points
0: for sure I'm um, talking about other reference points there's one particular one in your book and, and it kind of parallels this journey along the Tamar River I'm searching my books for bridges were bridges part of that journey how did bridges relate to this journey down the Tamar River
1: The journey down the Tamar began by my being too frightened to cross the bridge. The family was at the other end of the bridge waiting for me when I was um, nearly five to cross over so that they could start the journey up the river towards the picnic. As I was writing, the the bridge and the fear of crossing turbulent waters kept returning to me as, as, as an idea and a thought as I wrote. And I automatically, I guess, searched my bookshelves for books about bridges, uh, poetry about bridges. And one thing that I delighted in realising was that one of my very favourite books is called Mrs Bridge, which has nothing to do with bridges really, but by coincidence, and that's always nice to have a coincidence, by Evan S. Connell. And it's one of the most powerful feminist texts that I've ever read it's set at the time of the Second World War, the Second World War lurks in the background as it lurks in the background of my own life and in the background of this book telltale and um, and Mrs. Bridge is in the service of her husband, mr bridge, and it's it's a terribly sad story very very fabulously
0: told i also wondered what the connection between bridges and peacocks was
1: yes well the family said that we'll go for a picnic at the gorge and when we get up to the top of the river we come to the picnic ground and there'll be peacocks up there so that was pretty exciting i thought oh boy um i'm going to see a peacock and peacock to me, meant a peacock fanning its tail displaying in in its mating dance. But uh, what I didn't realise as a child was that because we were going for the picnic in March, which is a very nice time in Tasmania to go for a picnic in autumn, the peacock would not be flashing its tail because it flashes its tail in the mating season in spring. So there is a tension throughout the narrative. The child is constantly thinking, I'm going to see a peacock, and the reader is constantly thinking, no, you're not. You're not going to see a peacock's tail anyway in in its full glory. And so um, the peacock is a very important motif in the narrative, and, of course, it is a symbol of hope
0: seems to me also a symbol of deception in this case.
1: Indeed so. And in fact, the, the whole book started its journey uh, by my rediscovering the, the stories of Brer Rabbit. Now, Brer Rabbit was the first book that I read all the way through when I was six. And it's the first book that I attend to in Telltale. And Brer Rabbit, of course, is a trickster.
0: One of the many books that you've examined is Cole's Funny Picture Book. It's one of the earliest books you ever pored over as a child.
1: I was horrified, and still am, by Cole's Funny Picture Book, which I don't think is funny. Um, And (laughs) I have no sense of humour. And uh, it, it is horrifying and it is fascinating. And it was then and it is now. And I had a very good time in 2020 re-examining it very, very carefully and discovering, in fact, that Professor, so-called, that's in inverted commas, Cole, Edward Cole, was, among other things, also a trickster, big trickster.
0: I wondered uh, whether you could recall your reception or your appreciation of that book all the way back to your sixth year of reading and how it compares to now. Did you find it funny then?
1: No. No, I didn't find it funny, but I, I found it fascinating and horrifying. And it it, it was on such thin, nasty paper and, and the horrible drawings and the nasty ideas were, well, yes, fascinating.
0: Having set yourself a rule, a rule of only reading within... Um, The confines of your library, even with the internet sitting right there in front of you, were you ever tempted? And it seems like you were tempted to break the rule. And that uh, I'm referring to the book, The Bridges of San Luis Rey. What brought you to that moment where you were forced to break the rule? What is it about that book which forced you to break that rule?
1: That book is a book about the breaking of a bridge. And Telltale begins with my being afraid that if I cross the bridge, it might collapse in the middle and I'll end up in the water and die. The Bridge of San Luis Spray is a- about six people accidentally dying as a result of the breaking of a rather fragile bridge. And I really, really wanted to reread it. Now, I could have... Reread read it of course on the internet but I wasn't allowed to do that <laughs> and I, I didn't want to read things on the I- internet, I wanted to, f- to have physical, physical books so after a very long and agonising time of not being able to read that book I broke my rule broke the bridge <laughs> and um, and called up a friend called Anne who runs Book Heaven, which is a beautiful second-hand bookshop in Castlemaine where I live in Victoria. And did she have the Bridge of San Luis Rey? Yes, she did. And she said she would, her shop was shut, but she said she would bring it over immediately. So she brought it rather in the manner that they were bringing pizzas in lockdown. It was like getting a nice, very special pizza. I got my copy of that book and was very delighted and and read it and I write about it quite a bit in in Telltale. The the copy that I was looking for in my house, I was convinced, was uh, a dull, small, grey, nondescript, hard-covered little book. What Anne brought me was a rather lovely navy blue imitation leather uh, version with uh Thornton, Thornton Wilder is the author and uh, it, it has in gold letters a little autograph of his on the front cover. So that was very special.
0: What kind of connections did uh, receiving that book engender for you in the writing of Telltale?
1: Oh, I've had a burst of enthusiasm for reading and writing suddenly uh, And uh, and, But a funny thing about it was that many months after I had, as it were, dealt with that book in Telltale, uh, I was washing my hands and came out of the bathroom and looked up at a bookshelf where something caught my eye and it was a bright green book. And I thought, I wonder what that bright green book could be. And I took it down and it turned out to be my old copy of the bridge of san luis rey it wasn't gray it was bright green so now i have two copies a bright green one and a navy blue one
0: and in a sense i suppose you didn't really break the rule because it was there all the time it was there all the time
1: <laughs>
0: Hold on. yeah i want to talk to you about growing up and living in tasmania as a child Uh, you go on to say, I don't know when it dawned on me that the First Nations were still a ghostly presence in Tasmania. I knew back then that the land was haunted by the violent history of betrayal and massacre. Is that something that was evident to you at a young age or something that has gradually developed over time?
1: No, no, it was evident to me at a young age because my father had quite a few old history books um, that... Mentioned in various ways the true history of Tasmania. It's a a history of darkness and violence and horror and massacre and um, cannibalism and the suppression of the First Nations people of the island. It was believed in my childhood that the First Nations people of Tasmania had been wiped out completely, but it was clear somehow that that couldn't be true, and I was so interested in their still being there that one time I did a very wicked thing, (laughs) and we lived near um, a... A quarry from which they used to take um, the clay to make pottery. Launceston was quite well known for some distinctive pottery. We as children were not supposed to go to the quarry because it was a very dangerous place. I'm sure it was. But naturally that was where we went. And I took it upon myself to take some red ochre with which my mother would clean the fireplace and a bit of black paint and a bit of white paint, and go over to the quarry and do some imitation Indigenous paintings, small wiggles and dots and lines, more or less copying from those boomerangs that were sold at the time um, to tourists, yes? Uh, and I did these paintings in the quarry and I would take friends over there and show them these Indigenous, well, we call them Aboriginal, paintings that I had supposedly discovered in the quarry.
0: Another book that comes up uh, in that period is by Arthur William Loon, Tasmania's Northeast. What kind of book was that and what influence did it have on you?
1: It had a great influence on me. It was the story of the uh, settling, as they called it. I don't like that word. Uh, I see the, 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 the British as invaders, and I often refer to them in the book as the invaders, who took over the land, in the, all over, of course, but in particular in that book, in the northeast. east uh, And my great-grandfather, um, John Power, is, is mentioned in that book. He had... A timber business, and my grandfather had that timber business as well up there, chopping down the forests. Of course, the Loon book has a section in which there is a picture of an indigenous girl called Mathina, and in fact, uh, I had a, a picture of Mathina on my bedroom wall. So you see, I was very interested in all this at the time. The painting, the painting of Mathina. Uh, is is very well known. She's an Indigenous girl wearing a dear little red European dress and she looks so incredibly sad.
0: Has that sadness found its way into your body of work?
1: Yes, it has. Uh, When the government publication about the stolen generations came out bringing them home was the government report and as soon as it came out i of course bought a copy and read it and i it dawned on me that it's a government report it's a great big heavy book it's terribly expensive it's rather hard to read everybody in the country ought to be reading this book i thought then i had a brilliant idea and thought i could extract some of the stories that the Stolen Generations people have told here and collect them into a little anthology that will be accessible to people. So I contacted my publisher, Random House, with the idea and they said, yes, let's do that. So we did. And the book is called The Stolen Children, Their Stories, um, and it's a uh, yes, it has made those stories accessible, particularly to children in schools. In high school, I wrote an essay about uh, the convicts and the aborigines of Tasmania. It was an essay I wrote in response to an invitation from a high school in the United States that my high school, Launceston High School, um, could send some stories written by the students in exchange about their country in exchange for similar works from the high school in the United States. And so I wrote about the convicts and the Aborigines. However, the teacher said my essay could was quite a good essay in its way, but it couldn't go to the United States because these things were not for export. We don't talk about these things. And it burned very deeply into my soul and I realised that I had to write things. And it it really was a, a key moment in my formation as a writer.
0: It's sort of a paradox, isn't it? It's the power of censorship to drive exploration and explanation further forward. My final question to you is about the subtitle of this book. It's called Telltale, but it's subtitled Reading, Writing, Remembering. So it's a journey through a lifetime of reading, uh, and I want to know in what way or to what extent can a reading list or a personal library in some way define a person and specifically a writer?
1: The the books that I read and, and read do follow uh, several patterns many patterns really but i it, it was became clearer to me as i worked through the library and through the writing of tilltale that there are certain motifs certain subject matter certain eras that keep keep recurring i mentioned feminism a minute ago a lot of my reading um, has been feminist reading. A lot of it has been fairy tale, um, philosophy, um, history. And I, I love nonfiction. I do write a lot nonfiction, but I have also probably published more fiction than I have nonfiction, but a lot of my fiction uh, rests in my non-fiction interests and in my research into real things. Mm.
0: And beyond Telltale, is the journey continuing?
1: Oh, certainly. I'm I'm in the middle of writing a collection of short fiction and many of the pieces in it are in the voices of extinct animals.
0: We look forward to that. And Carmel Bird, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast.
1: Oh, thank you for the invitation, Greg. I've really enjoyed talking to you.
0: I've been talking to Carmel Burt about her memoir, Telltale. It's published by Transit Lounge, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. (music) Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.